Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I am delighted today to be joined by my esteemed co-host, Paul Verbal. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm pretty relaxed and... Cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. Oh, that's great to hear. Paul is a postdoctoral fellow at Crawford School of Public Policy, and he works on the economics of and policy of energy, water, and climate change. Now, Paul will know this, regular listeners will know this, but at the beginning of each podcast, we take a look back over the week in public policy and pick out a couple of things that have caught our eye. So, Paul, what's caught your eye over the last week in the wide world of policy? Well, Martin, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've got a federal election in Australia. I haven't noticed, no. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And one of the exciting things for me that's come out of this is that people have started talking about the value of different types of water and the different ways in which water can be purchased by the government on behalf of the environment to ensure the health of the Murray-Darling Basin. And I think (laughs) those are conversations that are becoming more nuanced now now uh, that this issue is in the media. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really great thing. Unfortunately, though, uh, the fact that there are these concerns around decisions that were made by the Department of Agriculture and the minister at the time around purchasing water from a particular, um, a particular property is that uh, people are concerned about the opaque process. They feel as though they've been cheated a bit here. Now, in Australia, there's been a lot of discussion about how citizens are losing their faith in politics. It's a real problem if we start to lose our faith in our political institutions and our institutions of government. Now, in Australia and the Murray-Darling Basin, we used to have a National Water Commission, and that was abolished in 2014. And the reason that it was abolished or the reason given was that there was no more need for an independent statutory authority with regards to, uh, with regards to water in the Murray-Darling Basin and managing our, our national water because enough progress had been made. Well, I think events over the last week have shown that that's not the case. So, and this has obviously dominated the election campaign so far, where do you think all of this is going? Where, where, where is it all going to end up? Look, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I suspect that now we're ready for a conversation, a national conversation about our water management. There have been these issues. Uh, there have been the fish kills uh, at Menindee Lakes. Uh, I know on Policy Forum there was a great podcast a couple of months ago where some of the some experts here have talked about have talked about what needs to be done, and I I, th- I suspect that we're going to have maybe not wholesale uh, round of reform, but it, the next government is going to have to look at how we can manage water better. And there have been some calls for a royal commission. Do you think that's perhaps a way it might be resolved? Why not? I think the best way to restore public faith in polit- politics and political institutions is transparency. Now, we already, there was already a Royal Commission in South Australia. Unfortunately, the government prohibited public servants from being able to attend that and appear and give evidence. Maybe if we had a Royal Commission at the national level, we'd be able to open everything up. And that's just not looking at the decisions made in the last term of government, but also thinking about what 
how the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was developed uh, in the first place when the Labor Party were in power. Do you think any of the discussions around water buybacks has the potential to influence the outcome of the federal election? I don't know. I, I think you'd have to ask voters in rural areas what they think. Well, I think that the federal election campaign has been uh, dominant in the world of public policy. It's certainly in Australia over the last week, and I've been following the election campaign very closely. I've got to say, I, I don't know about you, Paul, but I think it's been a, a, a fairly unremarkable campaign so far. What's your take on it? Um, look, I think one of the things, it has been unremarkable in some some respects, and I think there's been a a certain level of continuity with the last campaign in the sense that then we had this uh, notion, this idea put out there that it was going to be the end of public health uh, in Australia during the last election campaign. And I I saw in the news that apparently there's a truck uh, driving around Canberra at the moment saying that the Labor Party are going to uh, kill us all with taxes or death taxes. I'm not sure what they're trying to get at exactly. But uh, yeah, it's unremarkable in in that respect. And a bit disappointing. Yeah, I found it a bit disappointing as well. But one thing I haven't found disappointing is the fantastic analysis which has been provided by our brand new podcast. It's called uh, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, the uh, noted former journalist who is now a fellow at the ANU Australian Studies Institute. And each week on the podcast, Mark Kenny sizzles up some analysis on the uh, on the election campaign with various guests from around ANU and beyond and the the panel discuss the policies and the politics surrounding the Australian election campaign and they also take a look at what might lie ahead in the, the weeks to come in the lead up to the poll if you haven't listened to it yet go check it out it's on iTunes it's on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from and we will leave a link to it in the show notes and Before we get into talking about what this week's episode is going to have a look at, I want to give a quick reminder to our listeners to please come and join us on our Facebook Policy Forum pod gang. We've created the group for you so you can have a chat to other listeners, you can talk about the podcasts, you can have a chat to some of the presenters and share your ideas for future episodes of Policy Forum pod. We always love to hear from you. So if you want to come and join the gang, just type Policy Forum pod into the search bar on Facebook and we would love to have you there. So moving on, Paul, tell us about what we're going to be looking at today. Thanks, Martin. Today on the pod, we're going to turn our attention further afield to the Asia-Pacific and take a look at climate finance. Now, barely a day goes past without climate change featuring prominently in the headlines. Across the globe, countries are increasingly affected by the impacts of climate change, such as droughts, floods. But nations in the Asia-Pacific with the long coastlines and their dense populations are particularly vulnerable. To manage the impact of these disasters and support economic development in the region, Asian Pacific governments are trying to build resilience to extreme weather events and adapt to long-term climate risks. They're also seeking to transition towards renewable energy sources to reduce emissions, but many of these countries are still developing and financial resources are limited. Whilst international funds are available to some extent, access to finance is it's often hampered by complex bureaucratic processes. Another challenge is the translation of national-level policy into positive local-level outcomes. So today we want to ask, why is it proving difficult for countries in the Asia-Pacific to tackle climate change effectively? And, and what are the hurdles for countries that want to access climate funding to assist their energy transition and build climate change resilience? Now, these are really big, important questions and obviously very significant throughout the region. And we've got a great lineup of guests to shed some light on these questions. First up is Kirsty Anantharaja. Kirsty is a PhD scholar at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. She's a research associate on a DFAT funded project called Harness 
promising financial markets and institutional investment to increase the penetration of clean energy in the Asia-Pacific. We've also got Dr. Abadar Setuwati, who is a research fellow at the same school, the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Uh, she's also part of that uh, research project that I mentioned before. And last but certainly not least, we've got Dr. Kate Duggan. And Kate is the Director of Griffin Natural Resource Management. She was Australian Team Leader and Project Director for several Australian initiatives in the natural resources and rural development sectors across the Asia-Pacific. And she's worked closely with the Australian Aid Program to develop climate change and environment policy and responses at a global level and for country programs. So a really great uh, lineup of guests to talk about these issues that we flagged up already. But before we get to that discussion, a quick reminder to our listeners, please do get in contact with us. We're really interested to get your questions, your comments, whatever you want to say about the podcast. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or best option, jump onto the Facebook podcast group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. We'd love to hear what you've got to say. Now stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your questions and comments on previous podcasts or on pieces that have been published on our website, policyforum.net. But for now, let's turn our attention to climate finance in the Asia-Pacific. Well, welcome to our panellists. Kate, hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, Kirsty, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And Abadar, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you all here today to talk about this very important topic. I'd like to start it off by noting people like Greta Thunberg, uh, the climate strike, the extinction rebellion movement have really sort of pushed climate change to the forefront of everyday news reporting. And Climate change affects us all, particularly, though, for island and coastal nations. Uh, The threat is very real. So I'd like to start off with a sort of broad question to you all, and perhaps I'll point this towards you, Kate, first. Why is it so difficult for countries in the Asia-Pacific to tackle climate change effectively? It's a very good question. I mean, I think it's difficult for countries everywhere to tackle climate change. It's a compounding problem that affects everybody's lives, livelihoods, businesses, communities. The Pacific is a very diverse region and countries have a whole range of different issues that they're dealing with. So, you know, cyclones, um, storm surges, we've got the impeding threat of sea level rise, coral bleaching, all of these impacts are, are a compounding existing problems that, that people are facing in terms of livelihood and their and their businesses. Um, so like everywhere, it's a multifaceted issue that can't be just addressed through one particular approach. It needs a lot of different um, activities to, to to tackle it. But it's it's so complex across the economy and in the Pacific, so many people still rely very heavily on weather-dependent livelihoods and industries. So they're particularly vulnerable and many of the countries are susceptible to repeated um, larger events like cyclones and and storm surge and flooding. Um, And it's difficult to recover from those um, quickly. And so to to actually achieve um, resilience is a long, long, long long-term issue that we're dealing with, food, water security, um, in resilient infrastructure, all of these things are going to take a long time. And we're just really at the beginning. Kirsty, turning to you, what's your take on that question? I mean, why, why, why do you think it's so difficult for countries in the region to tackle climate change? Well, my background is actually in climate finance, so I might start there. And firstly, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, we've primarily been focusing on climate change mitigation through reforms in the energy sector. Um, In the Pacific, these types of initiatives actually have adaptive outcomes as well. Um, As you might know, many countries in the Pacific are really reliant on imported diesel for their electricity needs. So as such, they're quite vulnerable to external 
shocks in prices. Um, so, yes, as I mentioned, it is going to cost a lot of money for these countries to meet their goals. Um, and a good reference point is some of the goals countries have set for themselves under the Paris Agreement or through their NDCs, um, Nationally Determined Contributions. And Fiji, which is the main country that I have studied, has made really ambitious goals under um, this agreement. And I think it is that they aim to generate 100% of their electricity from renewables um, by 2030. And meeting these targets is extremely expensive. There was an estimate that came out two years ago that put it at around $2.97 billion between 2017 and 2030 for Fiji to realise that. And that's going to take more than um, aid and public sources. So Fiji is facing this new challenge of how to get more diverse sources of funding to help them meet these goals. That is a very ambitious target. And we'll get more into talking about how they go about actually uh, paying to um, achieve that. But first, I I do want to come to you, Abidal. What's your take on uh, the challenges facing uh, the countries in the Asia-Pacific in terms of tackling climate change? Um, I'm actually going to continue what Christy was saying about um, climate finance because that also happens in uh, emerging economies like Indonesia. And especially for Indonesia, uh, for mitigating and adapting to climate change and uh, transition to low carbon development require a lot of uh, finance. Um, and I think it estimated 24 8 billion US dollar per year. And public finance cannot co- <coughs> uh, cover m- only a small fraction of those need. And then the other things that um, also experience is actually because public awareness of uh, climate change is not yet, uh, maybe it's not as prevalent like in the developed countries compared to developing countries. And the uh, uh, development priority, especially for the government, even though there, there are awareness of it, but the priority for economic development is still trump uh, the effort for uh, mitigating and adapting to climate change. And um, the other dimension that I want to highlight is uh, actually the aspect of inequality of the impacts because people from especially for marginalized communities and poorer uh, people actually uh, are um, uh, impact more severely than other uh, economic groups in society, not only Indonesia, I guess in uh, most countries in Asia and Pacific. So I think that's my take for that question. Great. Thanks very much for that. Now, let's uh, let's start to drill down into some of these issues a bit here. And <clears throat> it was mentioned before uh, by Kirsty that this issue of renewable energy deployment and, and ambitious targets by Fiji. Now, obviously, small Pacific Island nations contribute very little to global emissions. And this transition to low-carbon alternatives, investments in renewable energy, they can reduce reliance on fossil fuel imports, like you said, Kirsty, and, and, and price shocks. And there could be other local benefits as well. Now, as you said, I think the figure you quoted was $2.97 billion. And aid, development assistance is not going to be enough. Where's that money going to come from? Hopefully from diverse sources such as the private and financial sector um, and through innovation. So one thing that Fiji has recently done very well is launching their Green Bonds Initiative. Um, And it... It was really great getting at getting different types of investors to invest in Fiji um, and invest in most of those um, projects linked to those bonds were actually adaptive, which was great. Um, but as it stands, there are many, many, many barriers to investment and to actually channeling these funds into meaningful climate outcomes. Um, I think a lot of the discussions so far at the high level is focusing on mobilizing these funds. So where are we going to get the money from? How are we going to get the right instruments to get to get this money in here? But there's been less focus on absorbing those funds, um, deploying them and following through to real meaningful outcomes. And in Fiji, there's several barriers to that process, um, including 
like a limited private sector, including the nature of the energy market in Fiji, is still, despite the fact that the utilities and the process of being corporatized is still pretty much a monopoly and there isn't much space for private players to come in. There's a lack of policy frameworks to support both renewables and private players generating renewables, um, among other (laughs) various barriers. And so it's incredibly complex and I think it is going to take a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, a lot of coalitions and partnerships and cooperation to to move beyond just this mobilisation to actual climate outcomes for Fiji. And in terms of that that mobilisation, uh, moving from the mobilisation to outcomes, where do you think the key drivers can come from? Do, do you think it's a matter of making the uh, climate bonds, which, as you mentioned before, they're, they're basically debt instruments, which mm-hmm. allow the government to be able to issue debt and then overseas investors can uh, um, can purchase that debt. Uh, is it a matter of those purchases of the debt, if they're banks or overseas con- overseas governments, is it a matter of them saying, okay, well, here's your funding, now there needs to be some conditionality attached to that, or is it something that needs to come from uh, say the government or from grassroots organisations, where where are the drivers yeah. going to come from? Look, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I think it needs to kind of come from everywhere. I think Fiji and the state of Fiji, the people of Fiji, the communities and the local SMEs in Fiji's, Fiji, which are pretty inspirational, they kind of need to drive that that change. But everyone needs to be involved in supporting that, um, thinking creative, creatively. Um so I, I don't necessarily think it's one big push that can come from externally or one institution in Fiji um, that holds the answer. I think it's about making meaningful partnerships. Like, for example, with the green bonds, um, it was driven quite heavily, I believe, by the Reserve Bank, um, and they partnered with certain technical experts and donors, um, and together they they launched this program really, really quickly. I think it was in about four months. Um, and it was that coalition between different expertise, different symbolic capital as well, and different, you know, yeah, it, it was about heavily about that partnership and that team that made that happen so quickly. So I think an important step is learning to work with others from different sectors and creating these interesting coalitions and hoping innovation stems from Oh, that's great. Really interesting insights. And maybe we've talked about Fiji a little bit here. Uh, Abita, uh, perhaps you could share some reflections on, on Indonesia. You know, mm-hmm. We know that uh, coal consumption in the energy sector is planned to increase a lot in Indonesia. Uh, how is the Indonesian government and business allocating resources to the renewable energy transition, or, or, or is it? So maybe I uh, can give a little bit context of Indonesia. So in Indo- Indonesia is one of the country with fastest growing energy consumptions. Uh, currently, uh, the uh, major contributor for uh, cli- greenhouse gas emission is actually from uh, land forest degradation and uh, forest fire. But uh, it is predicted uh, in the next 10 years is going to be energy consumption that lead the contribution for um, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission. And um, the government is quite aware of that situation. Um, uh, there is a commitment that is actually uh, included in the national energy uh, policy in Indonesia. Uh, government is committed to increase the energy mix for 23% uh, by 2025, which is not... Uh, far from now. Uh, but there has been a really slow progress to achieve that. Um, uh, until last year, it's only 8% has been achieved, uh, even though it has been declared maybe uh, almost a decade ago. But the slow progress, and there are many um, barriers. Uh, one uh, is, of course, uh, on uh, access to finance. Um, uh, it's ultimately for uh, achieving that uh, target. It needs investment 140, uh, 50 uh million US dollar um, and uh, government cannot uh, fulfill that uh, and it's uh, it's actually really aware of it uh, and the other thing is uh, it's actually uh, like also what happened in Fiji because of the monopoly of state utility company it limit the market for uh, renewable energy uh, investor to invest in Indonesia even though there are some regulation that has 
been in place to uh, reduce the monopoly, but because of the resistance and uh, the persistence of the monopoly that is actually mandated by the constitution, uh, almost 80% of the utility sector still controlled by the state utility company. And you mentioned about uh, the interest of coal. Of course, in Indonesia, coal industry is really... Um, It's really close tied with the political elites, and it's um, uh, um, uh, it's actually uh, the, there is a really high political interest there. It makes uh, uh, the ambition for renewable energies like a tango dance. You know, you move uh, uh, forward uh, two step, and then you move backward uh, two step, uh, just like that. That's what happened, and uh, the regulation it. Really uncertain uh, regulation is actually one of the key barriers. Um, for example, in 2017, Indonesian uh, the Ministry of Energy and uh, Natural Resources actually stipulated 20 new regulations, and within only one year, and then it was revoked like few months after because of the backlash from the industry, and it continuously changed because of the change of the leadership. So within this uh, particular environment, it's actually. Um, somewhat discouraging for uh, private investment to invest in renewable energy in Indonesia, even though the the commitment is there. Abadar mentioned coal there, and I've got a question for you, Kate, which was that in late 2016, Australian diplomats were lobbying for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank to direct funds towards clean coal, uh, in air quotes, power plants in the region. Is Australia doing enough to support energy transitions in its neighbourhood? Uh, interesting question because I think that Australia's activity and policies and programs in the Pacific are really focused at the moment on um, achieving, helping countries to achieve their international commitments. So both in terms of resilience, building resilience, and in terms of um, in terms of emissions reduction. Uh, it, it's true that Pacific countries have fairly ambitious targets, some of them, in terms of emissions reduction for the NDCs. But the reality is that um, the Pacific is such a tiny contributor to the global problem that what we're really aiming for is to achieve, I think, what you alluded to, the, the kind of adaptive co-benefits of moving to renewables. Uh, certainly Australia is... Um, working with Pacific countries to look at transitioning to renewables and supporting achieving the NDCs, achieving their emissions reduction targets. The big opportunity, you know, it, it is difficult in the grids, in the grid systems in every country. It's it's really difficult to to achieve that. But if you look at the the electrification in the Pacific, in a lot of countries it's really low, like in PNG it's around 13%, 14%. So Australia is working with with governments to um, increase that, but to do it in a way that gives greater access and security and more affordable energy, which is development-linked. So it brings development impacts with it. And if you can achieve that, then you can look at the off-grid situation. And in terms of, um, you know, the economics around that, they've certainly uh, really turned recently in terms of um, favouring renewables over imported diesel generation and other um, fossil fuel sources. So in a nutshell, I mean, without sort of getting into the whole coal, clean coal um, um, scenario, which isn't a thing in the Pacific, mm -hmm. um, it's really about trying to find the entry points and the investment opportunities for bringing about really good development for people in communities who don't have access to power uh, to bring to bring electrification first, but to do that in a way that can, I mean, it's a generational opportunity to jump over locking into a high carbon um, future. And very much Australia is looking to support that in Pacific, um, particularly in, in countries like PNG and in Fiji and in um, Solomon Islands and places where the opportunity is just for, for remote communities, off-grid systems, uh, development first approaches to that are really looking very viable. Kate, one of the things that you mentioned there was about uh, microgrid systems and the potential for distributed energy resources to be able to yep. electrify uh, communities, yep. so to speak. And uh, I guess one of the big benefits uh, that can come uh, from distributed energy resources is that uh, communities in isolated areas, if they're not connected to a centralized grid, then if there are extreme weather events, uh, flooding, what have you, that might bring down 
a, a larger centralized grid that you will be able to continue the um, energy access for those communities. Now, perhaps what we can, in, in that context and thinking about the benefits of renewable energy deployment, think a bit more specifically about climate resilience and climate change adaptation and extreme weather events. What do you, th- what do you see as some of the major opportunities uh, in terms of climate resilience uh, for the Australian government and for uh, in to help uh, countries and communities in the region? Mm, well, certainly in terms of um, energy, it's really interesting that some of the local some of the local evidence from around the region, but also from the states and other areas, are showing that big, small um, renewable systems tend to be able to get up much quicker after a disaster than 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 grids and and places locked into um, big systems that are fueled by by um, fossil fuels and particularly diesel generation. So that's one thing. But, you know, in the Pacific, when we talk about resilience, we're talking about everything to do with people's lives and their livelihoods and businesses and communities. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, there's so much to do, though, when we look at at what we've what we've achieved, it's really just the beginning. When we understand the impacts and the projections coming out in the next few years from the IPCC are going to be fairly scary, unfortunately, but that's reality. Um, the amount of room that we have to move in terms of resilient buildings, um, we've just sort of in in the Australian Aid program committed to making sure that all Australian funded investments in infrastructure are climate resilient. Um, that's not an easy thing to do, but it's a place where we have to start because the cycle of, of build and then knock down and rebuild is is just crippling for Pacific economies. But also when you think about food and water security, um, the technologies that are available, the, even with low-level land, low level land resources in some coral atoll situations, even in places that are dependent on, um, you know, freshwater lenses mm-hmm. for, for water supply, the the capacity to be able to to manage water resources better to be able to improve um, food security using you know technology and even even just simple agronomy um, techniques is 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 important but there are some basic kind of um, you know planning systems that are going to have to change in terms of where people and and critical assets are located um, early warning systems and and Information access to to the science and information is going to be really important as well in terms of building resilience. But I think, I mean, just just to make a point about, you know, we're talking about financing before, there's around $1.7 billion in climate finance floating around the Pacific at the moment in recent and current investment projects. And I want to pick up on a point made earlier that it's really how that money is spent and mm-hmm. and how effective it is in connecting with the priorities and programs of Pacific governments and Pacific communities that is the important issue rather than accessing more and more. I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. the Green Climate Fund came in yeah. uh, in the last few years. Mm-hmm. It's already accounting for like 30% of that finance. It's skewing it strongly towards renewables and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I guess, in the mix of all of that that money, it's, it's trying to make sure that that's actually impacting on the ground. Mm-hmm. Picking up yeah. on that point, I think one of the things that, that comes out is this idea of effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And one question that I have is that if it is about – it seems to be about food security, water security, livelihoods. This is talking about local level solutions. Mm-hmm. And these are not things that can necessarily be centrally planned or planned from a top-down level, whether it's yeah. developed from a development partner or whether it's from uh, a national government. Mm-hmm. So I think I might just turn now to Abita. Do you have uh, any thoughts on how governments in the Asia-Pacific can, can build better resilience uh, ag- against uh, climate change, extreme weather events um, at the national level mm-hmm. to help communities and households at the, at the local level to adapt? 
So maybe I can allude to my experience uh, before I come here because I work uh, mostly in interna- international aid agency. Uh, and I can see there is actually a change in the ways, the relationship between the aid institution with the government, especially what I see in Indonesia. There are more proactive um, conversation and the government actually uh, step in to uh, have a, a, a discussion and negotiation on the priority that they need from the international aid to invest in Indonesia. So I think there's actually a positive move in that sense. Uh, and I can see that actually happen in other countries is is more balanced conversation right now because the country has the capacity to um, prioritize their development agenda and prioritize their their uh, goal, especially related to uh, climate mitigation and adaptation goals. Um, that's one thing, like the more balanced conversation and also uh, setting up a priority between uh, aid agencies and also with the countries in 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 that regard and the other thing uh, as you mentioned uh, especially uh, bottom up approach is really important uh, for uh, defining the goals because it actually can influence the way people perceive certain solution uh, because uh, bottom up approach usually will last longer because of uh, a sense of ownership on uh, that particular approach um, I can see that in uh, the energy sector actually I uh, just come back uh, from one of the island with lowest electrification rate in the eastern part of Indonesia and I witness there is a really successful initiative for off-grid uh, micro-hydro solution that is actually come from the community. They have been uh, uh, waiting for the state electricity company to come to provide the electricity for so many years. Eventually, they just te- uh, uh, an NGO just stepped in, facilitated the community to develop their own uh, mini hydro and it actually operate by the community themselves and uh, it's sustained and uh, they can expand from one village to now is actually up to seven villages around them so this is uh, one of the example why the bottom approach, approach is uh, very important for sustainability in such effort. Oh that's great and Kirsty, do you have anything to add to that in yeah. terms of top down bottom up? Look, I would agree with um, Abida, and it's definitely about a bottom-up approach in achieving results, but the state has a role in supporting that. Um, It's a relationship. Um, For example, in Fiji, one thing that's really important is that the right enabling environment is created by the state, so bottom-up actors like local SMEs can participate. And as I alluded to before, in Fiji, there's a group of SMEs that are doing incredible work um, and against many odds. And if, you know, the conditions could be created to allow more such actors to participate, it would be a lot, you know, there'd be a better chance in Fiji achieving their energy aims. I think there's a really interesting um, segue here in that the the achieving of, you know, um, on-the-ground impact yeah. in, in climate resilience, in, in achieving climate resilience on the ground, Believe it or not, I think is a lot about long-term skills development. And Absolutely, we, you know, mentioned the the strikes, the kids going going and taking action um, across the world, and including in the Pacific, the integration of climate change in curriculum, accessing good information mm-hmm. about climate change, and mm-hmm. getting it to people is a real challenge, mm-hmm. and it's just beginning. But it's essential because we see so many kind of solutions brought in from the outside, things tried out, pilots here, pilots there, myriad pilots everywhere, total waste of money, largely. Um, these things have got to be uh, thought about and solved locally. They've exactly. got to be come from, you know, the countries, come from people who understand the context who can actually develop mm-hmm. solutions that are going to work and are sustainable and rather than things that are just coming in from yeah, the outside. Sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> but it's, it's exactly right. And working in these contexts in individual countries, it's a vastly different environment. Um, when I was in Fiji, I was talking about various consulting groups building solar. And one of the local consultants was saying, if you haven't, lived through a Fijian cyclone. You don't know what a cyclone is. So a lot of the design even of some of the arrays just did not take into account Fijian cyclones, which are brutal. And yet, crazily, that technology is all available. Exactly. That that technology, you can bring it it in and it just needs to have that local knowledge, local context. Exactly. People building things for their own circumstances. And, you know, that's where we're 
trying to head with sort of long-term skills building programs. Now, I want to turn briefly to climate finance aid. Australia has committed to spending $75 million until 2022 in development assistance through its Pacific Climate Partnership. Kate, from your experience in sort of on-the-ground management and implementation, how effectively has Australian aid money been spent in the region on climate change adaptation? Australia, like I think a lot of uh, countries who are donors in the Pacific, learned a lot from the initial kind of round of climate change projects, which, you know, um, were a little constrained by UNFCCC criteria around what they could fund. So there had to be additionality. There had to be something that was really climate change kind of identifiable that you could invest in. So the tendency for all donors, including Australia, was to build these, you know, um, climate change specific programs that were dealing with local climate change agencies, occasionally with natural disaster management offices, um, but a little separate from development process. Out of that whole scenario, we learned that it's actually very hard to have um, a, a good impact from that sort of investment because it doesn't intersect with mainstream mm-hmm. budgets, with development process, with you know businesses, with, with the reality of people's lives. So the newer investments are really looking at learning from that, believe it or not. And it's really, really looking at trying to um, work within those sectors. So everything that we do in the Australian Aid Program now is about making that climate informed and climate resilient. So if we work in food security, in agriculture, in in water, uh, uh, in energy um, and in infrastructure, but really importantly in health and education as well. Those sectors are our main kind of key aid program sectors. And our whole emphasis, all that money that you're you're talking about, is about building great science, connecting that with development processes mm-hmm. and budgets, making sure that that those um, investments are looking at risks, they're looking at opportunities mm-hmm. for building resilience, and that they're they're, you know, linking that to the government and community and industry processes for taking that on board. So as a result of that, we've seen, you know, um, uh, infrastructure that's being built with Category 5 cyclone, Gizo Market, Solomon Islands, Category 5 cyclone raised above projected storm surge. It's a matter of getting that information and applying it at that really specific context level. Uh, we've got education programs that are starting to build in climate change um, integration in, you know, teacher training in in curriculum, in vocational training skills. Um, and we've got health programs that are sort of starting to look at what is it about climate change impacts that affects our health systems, our service delivery, vector-borne diseases, waterborne diseases, and trying to make the relationship. And there's this great Bureau of Meteorology um, warning system that they're developing. Not quite there yet, but it's getting there, where the relationship between rainfall and and malaria has enabled them to develop a system that Based on rainfall forecasts, the seasonal forecast for rainfall, they can give the health system um, agencies a heads up about what the malaria season is likely to be like. So it's it's getting involved in all of those different sectors. That's what we learn and that's what is now global good practice and, and donors are taking that on board. And can I ask, uh, Abida, mm-hmm. do you see some of these uh, better practices that are emerging? Do you see that filtering through uh, in your work in Indonesia? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, um, especially uh, as I mentioned before, uh, like the there is more uh, like equal conversation about uh, the kind of uh, solution that are needed for uh, particular context in Indonesia and uh, international aids uh, are especially are really responsive about it. And Indonesia, uh, especially on the climate uh, mitigation and adaptation issue, Indonesia received a lot of money, not only from Australia, but, but in, uh, in other uh, international aids as well. That good practice are there, but uh, there are still more to be done, especially um, I can see uh, this is for my own reflection from uh, my previous work. There are three still like overlaps uh, among different donor agency on their initiative and the lack of coordination of among donor as well on their initiative. And uh, I can also see sometimes there is a competition mm-hmm. among uh, donor initiative on what kind of things that they want to do mm-hmm. in Indonesia. Uh, 
for example, in energy sector uh, is actually very crowded field. Many international donors will want to step in because this is a really big issue, especially in terms of uh, climate mitigation. And um, uh, there are some uh, rep- uh, some institution actually re- replicating uh, quite the same uh, effort. It's it's actually better if uh, there is a more concerted effort to uh, make coordination about uh, this initiative and make more impactful uh, uh, to ensure more Im- uh, impacts. You know, uh, to I think that's yeah. exactly right. I mean, in the Pacific, one of the big problems about making that one point seven billion dollars effective is yeah. coordination yeah. of the international yeah. investment, not just donors, but the Green Climate Fund and all of the other yeah. mechanisms that are coming in and money's flowing through them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the Pacific, there's some uh, effort in terms of there's a Pacific Resilience Partnership that's been established yeah. and that provides some, you know, that, that getting together of, of people, but there really is a really big need for much better and stronger yeah. coordination of all of this investment. Yeah. Um, but definitely. Yeah, I, I should also mention that there is a, a positive progress in Indonesia because uh, the government recently um, established like uh, an institution for um, sustainable development one uh, goal one. So it's actually uh, a platform where all of the resources, uh, financial resources will be pulled in into that particular uh, platform uh, to make sure that be it from uh, institutional investor, uh, financial institution and uh, philanthropy at agency will go to that particular platform and it will be targeted uh, flow to very targeted needs uh, to fulfill the commitment to achieve uh, 17 uh, SDG goals. So I think there's uh, something that I look forward to to see the outcomes, but I think there's a, a positive uh, development there. And a bit of a difference between yeah. the Pacific and, and Indonesia Pacific mm-hmm. countries, very small climate change agencies, small ministries of finance, they find it quite difficult to actually coordinate across mm-hmm. um, all of the streams of finance that are coming through, some of which don't necessarily just even connect with government. Exactly. And there's, you know, reporting requirements. And sometimes each donor requires different types of reporting, even on, you know, similar types of projects. So that can overwhelm these, these smaller bureaucracies. Um, and I'd just like to add to Abida and Kate and say that one thing that I found in Fiji that was concerning was repetition. Um, almost identical repetition of certain projects or outputs. And I think that um, collaboration and cooperation, which is occurring, um, would steer away from that. And we definitely need to to move away from that. And another way that we could do that is by deferring to the priorities of the state. Yeah, exactly. And some of the new kind of methodologies, whole of island planning mm-hmm. um, by, by Pacific governments in Kiribati, for instance, is setting up those really kind of bankable proposals yeah. that donors can come in because mm-hmm. from the other side, it's donors, but then from the other side, Pacific governments have really kind of found it difficult to, to create the plans and the proposals that donors can go, okay, we'll f- fund that, mm-hmm. US funds this, Australia funds that, mm-hmm. Australia and New Zealand get together funding that. It's been really quite difficult and it isn't really their issue, it's that some of that planning was sort of driven externally. So it was set up with 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 difficulties in terms of then turning it into great investment proposals for donors. Well, we are drawing to the end of what has been a fascinating discussion on these issues. And we like to finish these uh, discussions with a sort of magic wand type question. I want to go around to each and every one of you and put the question to you. If you had one piece of advice to policymakers on how to make climate financing more accessible and more effective, what would it be? And perhaps we'll start off with you, Kirsty. Oh, that's a really... (laughs) That's a really hard one. How many magic ones do I get? Um, <laughs> Just one. You only get five at once. Um, I think it would be to spend time in the country um, really learning from some of the great innovations um, and the great regulatory efforts and the great programs that have come from that country um, and use that as inspiration um, draw what you can from the successes, and there have been them. Um, and I think, yeah, innovation and creativity to me seem like the key here. 
So whatever, whatever drives that. That sounds like good advice. What about you, Avida? Oh, that's a really million dollar question. I don't know if I can answer it in the context of Indonesia. But I think one of the most important thing in Indonesia is actually because um, in my research, uh, many people said uh, finance is not the problem because there is a high interest, especially in renewable energy for people to invest in Indonesia. The problem is because they cannot move this big investment from one place to another, especially to make tangible impacts. Uh, and the biggest problem is uh, regulatory framework, I guess, uh, uh, especially in Indonesia. So I think... Uh, for Indonesia context, uh, regulatory reform is needed to provide a better incentive for the investor, especially in uh, renewable energy, to invest in Indonesia. And also, um, the other thing is uh, definitely to uh, provide more space, especially for uh, private in, uh, investment for renewable energy market in the country. And Kate, last word to you. What's your what's your one piece of advice to policymakers? Um, that there's no magic wand. <laughs> But <laughs> I, I think the one piece of advice would look, you know, all these investment mechanisms, whether they're donors or international funds, they've all got their own agendas. That's fine. That's accepted. Um, take the time to consult, you know, listen, work with Pacific governments and communities, businesses, um, tailor. There's no cookie cutter. Um, yeah, work, work with, within um, the context. Just try and understand that better and take advice from the people who do. Well, that's a wonderful practical note, I think, for us to finish on. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today, Kirsty and Faraja. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Abida uh, Setuawati. And thank you, Kate Duggan. Well, welcome back and thanks once again to our guests today, Kirsty Anantha Raja, Abadar Setiawati and Kate Duggan. I thought that was a really interesting discussion around the issues of climate finance and I've uh, still got Paul with me. What did you make of it, Paul? Well, man, I think the big thing that I took away from it is that it's not just about the money. And anyone in, who works in aid and development know that it's not just about the money you have. It's, it's about whether you actually use it effectively and whether it produces decent outcomes on the ground. So I think that's something that is very relevant in Australia and other countries when we're thinking about climate finance to other countries. And yeah, it's not just about dollar figures. It's how you use it. And did you get a sense that it is actually being used well? I mean, they talked a lot about the struggles with coordination issues there. Yes, I think so. But as someone who has sat in... Uh, development workshops in the past and heard buzzwords like resilience being used and nexus and all all these latest new fads, uh, I felt like the discussion around climate resilience and how the aid program is is actually changing and, and actually trying to achieve outcomes is, is very promising. Now, we've got a bit of a surprise for you, listeners, because whilst you were listening to our section music, we were reshuffling the chairs, and we've been joined by a very special guest who has been on the podcast before, Professor Quentin Grafton. How are you, Quentin? I'm very good. Thank you, Martin. Very pleased to be here. Well, it's, it's fantastic to have you here because we, in this part of the podcast, always go over some of the comments and questions that we have had from uh, previous podcasts. And the first one I want to touch on is a podcast we put out recently, which was called Getting the uh, APS Fit for the Future. It was around the Australian Public Service Review, and it featured Helen Sullivan and Bob McMullen and Harley Dennett from The Mandarin. And the panel took a look at the recent review of the Australian Public Service and asked whether its recommendations can transform the bureaucracy to make it fit for the future or whether years of creeping politicisation, the outsourcing of projects and a drain of talent have taken too high a toll. And we had a comment from Mark Zanker on our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. And Mark is a friend of the pod. It's always great to hear from him. And he writes, as a former APS member, I read the interim report and had a bit of a yawn, really. I never saw how mission and vision statements for public service agencies were at all helpful. They seem to me to be attempts to graft corporate notions onto the public service, and those notions simply are not applicable. What did you make of that, Quentin? 
Well, I'm very sympathetic with those words because I think the public service has a range of issues which you've already identified and the panel identified. But I think one thing that's, I think, not always said is this issue of diversity of thinking. And um, fortunately, in the public service, from my experience, you don't get a diversity of thinking. So how do you do that? Well, you do it through who you hire, who you promote, and the nature of the, the human resources and how people are engaged and invested. In. And I think that's the way you restore and renew the public service. And a mission and vision statements are certainly not going to take you down that path. So not that I'm against them per se, but certainly they're not going to deliver what we need for the Australian public service. And indeed, the, the last few days in the context of the Watergate scandal uh, that we're having right now in Australia in the election campaign, I think indicates that there is a need to make sure that the public service is kept arm's length from the uh, political masters in the sense that they truly is independent at the senior executive level and that we do, in fact, get uh, uh, value for money from our public servants in terms of delivering good decisions in the national interest. What about this idea of mission and vision statements for the public service and sort of grafting corporate notions on, onto the public service? Is there any kind of utility to that? Surely there are things that the public service can learn from the corporate world. Yeah, well, it, vision and mission statements are not just from the corporate world. I mean, they exist in the non-governmental sector. They exist in other sectors as well in civil society. So having a mission and vision statement per se is not a bad thing. It's just that if you think a vision and mission statement by itself, it's going to lead to change or fundamental renewal. Clearly, it will not do so. In terms of corporate notions, well, obviously, uh, good accounting, good auditing, those are the sorts of things that are, are, are absolutely you want. And, and typically, that's done well within the Australian public service. But certain other corporate notions, I think perhaps we don't want in a public service because a public service does not a corporation. It's very much different to a corporation. It operates for the public good and the public interest. A corporation operates for the benefits of its shareholders. So uh, there's only so many notions that are going to be applicable for a public service and some notions would be not a applicable. Uh, but the bottom line of investing in staff, investing in people, making sure that there's a diversity of ideas at the board of directors level, as well as within the staff and the executives, that I think is definitely a step forward, whether you're a corporation, whether you're a public service or whether you're a university. What's your take on this, Paul? Do you get excited by mission and vision statements? No, I don't get particularly excited by mission and vision statements. But I would suggest that something that Quentin just articulated there was this issue of principles. And and. Uh, I think maybe that's something that uh, listeners to this podcast might have a few ideas around. Uh, what should be some of the core principles of the Australian public service? And I'd be interested to see what people have to say. Well, maybe that's a question we could put up on the Facebook podcast group. Thanks for that, Paul. That's a, that's a terrific idea. The next one I want to turn to is uh, the podcast that we put out last week. Uh, it was an interview with Nyla Kabir, uh, which Sharon Bessel did. It was a terrific interview and had lots of really positive, uh, warm feedback. And thank you to everyone who wrote in and contacted us about it. Uh, and Sharon and Nyla talked about how, on the podcast, they talked about how gender impacts poverty and inequality. They took a look at whether the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals can genuinely advance women's empowerment. We can't have lovely comment from Kathy L. Allen on Twitter who wrote, uh, when two of your research inspirations are on the same podcast episode, Nyla Kabir, Sharon Bessel, thanks A&E Crawford for making this PhD candidate's dreams come true. That's a really nice thing to hear about the podcast. So many thanks for that, Kathy. Paul, you are still a PhD scholar. When, uh, when was the last time your PhD dreams came true? Well, I'm pleased to inform you, Martin, that they're about to come true. And I'm going to submit my PhD thesis very, very soon. That's very Next couple of weeks, maybe. Next couple of weeks, almost done. Quentin, uh, it's probably been a little while since you were doing your PhD. but uh, what <laughs> It has were, been a while, Martin, yeah. What were, what were your PhD dreams and did they come true? Well, the, the biggest dream of all did come true, and that was to graduate and move on. So a PhD uh, was fun uh, in a number of ways, but it's uh, it's only a means to an end in my view, and uh, I'm glad to have done it and 
put it behind me and moved on and uh, done other things in my life. Of course, I ended up as, a, as an academic and a scholar in that sense. And, and so that was a good training ground for me to, to develop and uh, extend myself in terms of the job that I'm currently doing. A PhD is an enormous commitment which requires great sacrifice from people. And, uh, you know, of course, there's fantastic rewards at the end of it, both for the people undertaking the PhD and in terms of the, the research that comes out of it. So, Kathy, we are really excited that we have been able to help you along the path towards your PhD. I'm really glad that you enjoyed the podcast. Now, we're really keen to get your thoughts on any topics that you would like to see us covered on the podcast. That's the best way to do that is to jump onto the Facebook group and let us know uh, on reach out to us on Twitter either way those ways are absolutely fine and if you've been interested in what we've been talking about today and you would like to learn more about climate change you might want to check out Crawford's Master of Climate Change degree you can find it on crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Uh, Finally, before we go, I do want to extend a warm welcome to a couple of new members of the Facebook podcast group. So hello to Patricia Radzi-Stewart and to Tolly Sithole. It is fantastic to have you both on board. Uh, We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And it's good night from me. And good night from him or me or something like that. We'll see you next week.